Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 12 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, April the 24th. First, I'll be talking to Didier Moutier, the Commissioner of St John Ambulance Australia, New South Wales. And we'll be talking about how St John Ambulance is using technology to support its 130-strong team of volunteers to remain connected and engage with the organisation during this period of strict social distancing. This is a critical component for the organisation, as it relies on a team of volunteers who are engaged to support the community. The Granville Division of St John Ambulance exists to support its local health services with first aid support and services and equipping individuals, families and workplaces with high quality equipment. The team also has a critical role in major incidents like COVID-19, where they will work alongside emergency services in times of need. And then I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering, analysing Australia's latest unemployment figures. But now, let's talk to Didier Moutier. Didier, how is St John using technology to address social distancing and keep their 130 strong volunteers engaged? Well, like many people in the community, we were challenged with the COVID-19 crisis and particularly the, uh, the rapid introduction of, obviously, social distancing. As an organisation, uh, we're relying upon our volunteers and having a social aspect to our volunteering. 
which keeps our volunteers engaged with the organisation. So when this happened, we had to look at alternative ways of being able to provide contact with our members and also provide that social um, outreach to members. So we looked to technology as a potential um, to being able to solve that issue. And we developed a strategy which at the core of the strategy was a Qualtrics software workplace uh, pulse check. And we use that as an ability for us to be able to reach out to all our membership, uh, do it in a, in a confidential way that allowed us then to be able to look at individual and understand um, how our membership was tracking. Okay, so what specifically does it do? So for us, what we do is on a weekly basis, on a Monday, we send out the survey to our members. And what we ask them is several just very simple questions. How are they feeling? What's contributing to that feeling? And also, if there's anything we can do to help them, whether it's a physical requirement, such as, for example, being able to get uh, shopping, or if it's more, you know, a social or member welfare requirements. In other words, having someone contact them or include them in other social activities online. So it's really just an ability for us on a week-to-week basis to monitor the membership, but on an individual basis to be able to see, you know, what people are doing uh, and what we can help them with. It's basically a, a check on each of the 130 volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the challenge with volunteers is that, uh, and any people, I suppose, in a group, is we can ask them collectively how they're going and everyone will say they're okay. However, what often happens is people will suffer in silence. Um, but when you do reach out to them, and that's our experience with this particular product, is that we actually get real feedback from people, uh, particularly those who are struggling, who would otherwise not put their hand up or be so willing to, to offer that in a public forum. What are the challenges that uh, your volunteers face with social distancing? Well, like everyone else in the community, they're not much different uh, to the average person. Uh, obviously, they volunteer their time, and that's a, a big component of what they do. Uh, but in the last few uh, surveys, for example, we've had members who have been struggling with the social isolation aspects, not being able to engage with other members in the organisation. We're very much like a family. Um, although we all go volunteer together, we often spend social time together as well. We have had members also lose their jobs um, as a result of some of the, the decisions that have been made by government. And we've had members, in fact, lose members of their family to COVID-19 as well. So we've had a varying different levels of, I suppose, feedback from our members about what's actually troubling and concerning to them. Well, that would mean you would have to attend to each and every one of them very closely, wouldn't it? Yeah, so what we did um, with the Qualtrics survey is that um, there is an ability to put a rule within the survey so that when certain responses are elicited, they send an email or escalation effectively to, uh, to a leader like myself. So if someone, for example, selects extra stormy as the way that they feel, I'll get an email directly to indicate that that's the case. St John has quite an extensive peer support program and chaplaincy program. So what I can do is actively go in and uh, engage in those services on behalf of that member. And how, how have they responded to it? Um, it's been overwhelmingly well received. And I say that because uh, the feedback I'm getting from members is that in terms of their whole uh, their whole life, St John has been one of the few organisations that have been dealing with it. It's effectively been reaching out to them. So, so this is part of a strategy. So the first part of the strategy has been to provide the surveys electronically. The second part of the strategy is on a weekly basis we have a member of our leadership team um, contact members within the division and team leaders are responsible for managing that, that cohort. So I suppose that the big challenge is, you know, how do you, you know, make this work 
long term and that's what we did with our strategy was to look at how we can make this sustainable for not just a, a two week period but effectively six months even longer if that happens to be the case. And uh, the issue is, I mean, can this actually work across devices? Our membership, of course, is a very broad base. So that means there's people who are familiar with, you know, the laptops and are happy to use those. Most of our members are young. Our average age of membership is actually below 30. So most members are used to smartphones and accessing smartphone applications, but importantly also being able to navigate to to websites and be able to do that no matter what they're using. So we have people who use Apple or, you know, who use Samsung or Android. We wanted something that was going to work and work easily too. So it had to be something that they could do in under two to three minutes. Um, so most of our members are tracking very well. So when that happens, often people aren't so interested in providing survey feedback. We want to hear if people are doing well, not just if they're doing, you know, badly. So we, uh, we encourage people to use the application. We wanted something that was going to be quick and across devices for that reason. How fast is it? Um, I actually fill in the survey myself. Uh, so on, on the front end of all of this, it's very quick. Uh, and we've deliberately also structured our survey to be quick. So it only asks three very simple questions. Um, but on the administrative side, so for me being able to look at data and to, you know, make sense of that data using some analytic tools such as the graphing, um, even the word cloud has been really, really a simple thing for us to do and has been very effective. I especially found, to be honest, the word cloud is really good because it gives me a sense of how people are tracking, um, something that I normally wouldn't associate with word clouds, but uh, it's worked very well for us. And, of course, the system has uh, inbuilt reporting tools, doesn't it? Yeah, so it has um, reporting tools which are quite simple to use. Uh, they're very, very basic, but they're very powerful. So for us to be able to produce a report um, is, you know, a very simple, you know, three or four process, you know, steps in the process, and we can produce something quite sophisticated. And I've been doing that on a weekly basis and then doing that as a way of being able to look at trends across time as well. So what are the trends you're picking up in the last few weeks? Uh, in the last few weeks, what I've noticed is, so when we started the surveys, we actually had a few members report extra stormy, and that was during the beginning of all of the COVID-19 measures that were being put into place in New South Wales. In the last uh, last couple of surveys, what we've seen is that members have actually started to settle, and we're seeing that members are shifting from just a handful of people who are extra stormy to now, you know, very few people. So uh, I suppose what we're seeing is people adapting to their circumstances, um, and also some of the things that we have been doing uh, in terms of supporting members. So in one case, we had one of our members who started a new business and straight away had to encounter this this situation. So. For that particular member, we were able to support them in providing access to financial services so they're aware of what entitlements are in, they were able to access from the government. And over the course of several surveys, that person individually has moved across to being more positive. And we've seen a shift in the membership from being some, some elements having troubles to now people moving across onto the right-hand side of the graph, showing that they're actually coping. And how, how have you been dealing with people who've lost family members because of COVID-19? So one of the things that we have in St John, which I think um, is something we're very proud of, is our peer support program. So with those people, uh, we would treat we treat them like we normally do any member who has suffered a family loss. <clears throat> so they're, they're allocated a peer support officer, and that person helps them to, I suppose, come to terms with the, the situation and also to be able to access specialist referral services. So we're working quite, quite closely with those members. 
the other challenge also is that because of the isolation, we're limited to how much support we can provide physically. And so it'll be a long-term thing with those members is to not only support them in the initial phase of this, but longer term when all of a sudden, you know, people have moved on and they may still have been still struggling with, you know, the loss of a family member. So this will be a longer term peer support engagement for us, but we're hoping that that will hopefully support members in an adequate way. Okay. And, and how do you deal with people who've lost their jobs? That, that's a trickier one. Uh, because obviously there's very little we can do physically to support that member. Um, so one of the things we have been doing with those members is uh, working with them to understand their entitlements in terms of engagement with uh, government and also I suppose the, the other services that are available to them as well depending on their circumstances. So the, the good news is for the members that we've had who've lost positions or jobs, um, they've got a, quite a strong uh, family support base and so it hasn't been so challenging for them as it would be for someone as I said earlier, who has a business who now finds themselves in difficulty. Right, okay. But, of course, uh, they would probably need, and, and for that matter, people who've lost family members, they would need, uh, they'd probably need regular chats, wouldn't they? Uh, absolutely. And I think it'll have to be, especially with people losing family members, it'll have to be a longer process for that uh, because, uh, as I said, normally, you know, people go through a grief cycle uh, and that usually resolves over a, a short period of time. Uh, we're in unusual environment where social contact is, is limited. So we need to make sure that that engagement is for a longer term with those individuals. Uh, and especially for some of the individuals where they've lost family members overseas uh, and really have limited access to their family in those circumstances. So we're having to up our engagement with them. So from a peer support perspective, what that means is they're allocated a peer support officer. And what we do for those individuals is we actually follow up with them on a routine basis. Uh, so that we make sure that either they're coping uh, or accessing their own coping strategies around the, the loss of a family member or they're actively engaged with um, a healthcare provider who can support them during the process. Well, uh, final question, where will this leave St John's in the future once the COVID-19 crisis has passed? One of the challenges for us, I suppose, is that we're... we're Unsure with COVID-19, how that will play out. Um, as an organisation, we support New South Wales Health and New South Wales Ambulance. So there is a potential for us to be um, responding to, you know, if this was to escalate, to be responding in a formal capacity to support those agencies. Uh, so one of the challenges we have uh, and why this was a particularly important strategy for us was we need to keep our members engaged because when we need to call upon them, we need to know that we have those resources available and that they're actually ready and available to help. Equally, Coming out of uh, isolation, the community will want to get back to uh, business as usual, I would imagine, in a reasonably quick time frame. And that will apply pressures to our organisation as programs and uh, as new events come online, they'll be looking to actually probably ramp up. So we're already starting to see that with rebookings of events later in the year. And what we expect is we're going to have a very busy time coming out of this. And of course, that's when we're going to need our volunteers the most. So it's really important to us, first of all, to look after our volunteers, but then secondly also to keep the engagement with our volunteers so that we have a, a workforce that we can rely on in the future to be able to support the community. Well, Didier, we'll be watching it with great interest and thank you very much for your time and all the best to St John's. Thank you very much. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering. Okay, well, Callum, 
The latest unemployment figures, uh, it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, employment rose, uh, I saw, and monthly hours worked and recorded the largest increase in over a year, and the unemployment rate ticked up 0.1% to 5.2%. But then there was the timing of it, because it came before the shutdown of essential services on the 23rd of March. Yeah, that's right. We sort of braced ourselves for a really bad number with the latest labour force figures, but of course that didn't eventuate. And the simple reason for that was because the labour force survey was taken in early March before all these restrictions on economic activity played out. So what the ABS is effectively measuring is what the labour labour market was like just before uh, the COVID-19 crisis began. And so we're going to have to actually wait till the April data comes out on the 14th of May to get a good feel for just what that impact was, because certainly there was very little indication of COVID-19 in the, the March labour force data. Well, we know the conditions have deteriorated, but we don't currently have any ideas to how much. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we know that the labour market has changed beyond all recognition since around the middle of last month. Um, We're beginning to see data coming from overseas, which is pretty nasty. Employment figures in the US, Canada have have really been quite bad, Um, but we don't really have many timely measures in Australia, so we can't really capture what that impact has been here. And indeed, we have this daily job postings measure that we're looking at, and that certainly indicates that hiring activity has declined um, sharply over the past month or so, down more than 50%. Um, compared with this stage last year. So we know the businesses aren't hiring, but we don't currently know how many businesses are, are letting off staff. And uh, those jobs figures, those, uh, those uh, job advertisements figures, I mean, are they right across in every industry? So early in the um, COVID-19 crisis, there was a few jobs that were doing reasonably well. Um, nursing was one, delivery drivers were another, um, responding to that, that changing environment that we were living in. But that has since changed in, in recent weeks. And, and right now, basically any sector you can name is, is doing quite poorly. There's no sectors that are doing well at the moment. Obviously, some sectors are doing much worse than others. Hospitality and tourism, you've got uh, the sports sector, beauty and wellness, uh, education and childcare are all really struggling right now, which is understandable given the restrictions that have been placed on on economic activity across the country. I've heard that nursing is doing it pretty hard too. Yeah, nursing is down now. I mean, it was up early in the crisis. There was that that surge of demand because we were really concerned about the the number of patients that were going to come into hospitals um, via COVID-19. So there was that early hiring flurry, um, which has since diminished. I think it's become clear at this point in time that Australia is managing this health crisis much better than almost any other country. And so, you know, we prepared for something a lot worse from a nurse standpoint than eventuated. And so the demand for nurses from a hiring standpoint has since diminished quite a lot, largely because we've already hired so many to address this health crisis. Now, the $64 question is, what impact will the government's JobKeeper measures have on the employment market? Yeah, great question. Um, So it's likely to have a a large impact upon the unemployment rate. And the simple reason for that is because with the way unemployment is defined, if you are paid by an employer in in a month, even if you don't work a single hour, you're considered employed. So someone who is stood down from their job, doesn't work at all through April, but still receives the JobKeeper allowance, will be considered employed via labour market statistics. 
And so naturally, that's going to have a big impact upon measures of unemployment. But we'll still be able to see where a lot of the weakness is in the labor market data through other measures. Underemployment will be one because there'll be a lot of workers out there who are working far fewer hours than they prefer. Uh, we're also going to see large declines in hours worked because even though the JobKeeper subsidy is keeping people employed, it's not providing them hours to work. And so we will see an unprecedented decline in hours worked uh, when the April data comes out. Now, uh, so, so what are the underemployment and uh, underutilisation figures like? Uh, so right now, the underemployment rate rose slightly to 8.8%, which is a little bit below its peak level of 9%. Um, I anticipate that we'll, we'll smash that record come next month. Uh, the underutilisation rate is currently at 14%, which is considered very high. It's only slightly below its peak following the global financial crisis. So the level of labour market underutilisation was you know, really quite elevated even before this crisis began. And so it will obviously be very interesting to see how high that rate gets throughout this lockdown. And then perhaps even more importantly, what it declines to once that lockdown is lifted, because the level of unemployment and underutilisation that we have when the economy is allowed to operate normally will really dictate how the economy evolves over the next three to five years. Because we know that if we do have a significant recession and the unemployment rate does get quite high, then it can take a long time to get that back down. That's what we experienced in our last recession. That's certainly what we experienced in the global financial crisis. So that will definitely be one to keep an eye on. And uh, certainly the issue was that in the, last, in the last recession, it took five to ten years to recover. Yeah, that's right. It took, the, it took almost ten years for the unemployment rate to get back to where it was before the early 1990s recession. And of course, even with the uh, global financial crisis, which was relatively minor from an Australian perspective, the unemployment rate is still well above where it was before the GFC for us. Um, so if we do see an unemployment rate that settles at, at, say, 10% once the restrictions are lifted, then it's quite conceivable that we could be looking at another five to 10 years before the unemployment rate uh, gets down to around that 5% level. Um, so... While we do tend to think of these restrictions as being a sort of short-term issue, it has long-term implications. It's going to be with us for years to come. Treasury is forecasting uh, unemployment to rise to 10%, and they're saying that uh, it would be 15% without JobKeeper. How do you assess that? I think it's really quite difficult to assess how high the unemployment rate can get and, and where it is likely to settle. We are dealing with something that's largely unprecedented, certainly within the lifetime of basically anyone alive right now. Um, and a lot of these forecasts can change quite wildly depending on the parameters used, the assumptions made by economists. I think if we do end up with an unemployment rate that doesn't go above 10%, I think we can really be quite happy with that outcome because there was that potential for us to be looking at sort of Great Depression numbers of 20% or more unemployment. And that certainly does appear to be what we might be seeing in, in countries such as the United States, given what's happened with, un with unemployment benefits in, in recent weeks. So if we can escape that, I think that would just be a, a great outcome for the Australian economy going forward. Still, it's double digits, and that's quite extraordinary. And... Uh, uh one would have to feel sorry for people who uh, 
what, uh, 18, 10 years ago, just entering the workforce and uh, during the global financial crisis, and now they have it again. Yes. Um, I mean, young people really do bear the brunt of, of a lot of these economic crises. We saw that with the global financial crisis, where the labour market for younger people just never really recovered. Even to this day, it's still far worse than it was before the GFC, and it is likely that this will be the case Again, younger people are often the first people to lose their, their jobs. I would anticipate that the spike in unemployment amongst younger workers will be much higher than it will be for the, the broader population, even once these restrictions are lifted. And you know, that elevated unemployment and, and high levels of underutilisation will stick with younger people for, for much of the next five to ten years, I would anticipate. I was certainly, I joined the workforce just before the global financial crisis. So I was a little bit lucky to get my foot in the door before that. Um, but I, I did see with a lot of my friends and a lot of my colleagues um, really struggled with that. And so I can certainly feel for younger people today who are just beginning their career in such a, an awful period of time. Well, that, that's quite, that's uh, quite striking. And uh, it just means an entire generation will be locked out of the workforce for some time to come. Yeah, it can have certainly long-term implications. So employment's one of them. Um, wages can be another. So if you start your career during an economic crisis, often you'll have to take low wages if you want to get your foot in the door. That can take you know, a good five to ten years to, to catch up with where you would have otherwise have been. So there's certainly long-term implications at play here. And these are going to have to be the issues that the, the federal and state governments look at because the economy is going to need support for a number of years in order to overcome this health and economic crisis. And younger people in particular are going to be amongst the hardest hit. And so we really do need policies that support employment for younger workers and ensure that they don't end up being part of the long-term unemployed because that would obviously be a devastating outcome for a generation of Australians. Well, it will be fascinating to watch. And Callum, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Liam. Thank you. And stay safe. Yeah, you too. So what's happening in the news? Well, of all the wild, unprecedented swings in financial markets since the coronavirus pandemic broke out, none has been more jaw-dropping than Monday's collapse in a key segment of US oil trading. The price on the futures contract for West Texas crude fell below zero for the first time in history, into negative territory at minus $37.63 a barrel. The reason... With the pandemic bringing the economy to a standstill, there is so much unused oil sloshing around that American energy companies have run out of room to store it. The historic collapse in the price of oil is inflicting another shock on a weakened world economy amid the worst global slump since the Great Depression hit markets and reminded everyone that while it means cheaper fuel, the fact that so many are locked down by the coronavirus means this time it will likely do more harm than good to the recession-hit global economy. And Virgin Australia has entered voluntary administration after failing to receive financial assistance from the Morrison government. In a statement to the ASX, the airline said the move would help recapitalise the business and help ensure it emerges in a stronger financial position on the other side of the COVID-19 crisis. The Board of Directors has appointed Vaughan Strawbridge, John Gregg, Sol Algieri and Richard Hughes of Deloitte as voluntary administrators of the company and a number of its subsidiaries. The federal government had refused to step in with a $1.4 billion loan despite repeated pleas from the company management. More than 10 parties have expressed interest in funding proposals or packages to save Virgin Australia, with some parties coming in overnight. Private equity firm BGH Capital, 
airline investor Indigo Partners, distressed debt investor Oak Tree Capital, and entrepreneur Richard Branson head a field of more than 10 parties grappling for control of Virgin and Virgin Australia's administrator is seeking to have the company's sale wrapped up quickly with a draft timetable targeting a deal in the next eight weeks or so. As the airline's boss said, the carrier was determined to fly again despite going into voluntary administrators on Tuesday. It remains unclear what will happen to its 16,000 staff, but Mrs Strawbridge said there was no plan for job cuts. Wages will continue to be paid, including for those who have been stood down and are accessing JobKeeper. The company collapsed under a $5.3 billion debt pile and held only $900 million in cash at this time. Virgin only raised $750 million of that debt last November to fund its full reacquisition of Velocity Frequent Flyer. The COVID-19 pandemic accentuated those troubles as subsequent restrictions on movement took the axe to travel demand and activity. Paul Scurra, who only took on the top job in March to turn the habitual loss maker around, said the decision was about securing a future for Virgin on the other side of the crisis. Former Macquarie Group Chief Executive Nicholas Moore has been appointed by the Morrison government to work with administrators of Virgin Australia. And redemptions on velocity frequent flight points have been temporarily paused for four weeks after Virgin went into voluntary administration. The pause follows the velocity site crashing on Sunday night as it was overloaded with members trying to redeem all their points as the inevitability of the airline entering administration grew. Points will remain in members' accounts and they can continue to earn points through the pause. Velocity also warned members that the four-week period may be extended. Velocity is not owned by Virgin, meaning the points business is not itself in voluntary administration. Meanwhile, Richard Branson, founder of the multi-billion dollar conglomerate Virgin Group, has pledged to mortgage his home and luxury holiday resort in the British Virgin Islands to help his business empire navigate the coronavirus crisis. The pledge on his Necker Island home was made in a letter to staff posted on Sir Richard's personal blog on Monday. The letter tackles head-on many of the controversies that have dogged the Virgin founder in recent years, such as the tax state of his family and businesses, and which now may threaten government support for Virgin Atlantic, 51% owned by the billionaire. The carrier like many airlines around the world, is facing a potentially fatal cash outflow as governments halt international air travel in the fight to contain the pandemic. In the UK, Sir Richard said Virgin Atlantic could only keep going with government support. The group has asked for a package of £500 million in commercial loans and state guarantees to help pay fixed costs and bolster cash. While it's true that Branson has been hit hard by the economic fallout from COVID-19, the move to put his own home on the line is also a result of the lukewarm response to his pleas for government bailouts of Virgin Atlantic Airways and Virgin Australia Holdings. Colouring that reluctance is Necker Island itself, with the British Virgin Islands retreat portrayed as nothing more than a tax haven by some UK politicians for billionaires like Richard Branson. And Virgin Australia's administration requires an unprecedented response from both industry and governments to help aviation recover from COVID-19, Melbourne Airport Chief Executive Lyle Stramby said, after warning passenger numbers were on track to tumble 97%. Melbourne Airport's March passenger numbers slid 44% compared with February, and by the end of the month were down 95% on the previous year. It had 473,846 international passengers pass through the airport in March, the lowest number since June 2010. Domestic passengers for the same month totaled 1.2 million, the lowest number since February 2004. 
The slump in passengers due to COVID-19 was worse than any previous crisis, including the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 and the SARS outbreak in 2003. And Sydney Airport has scrapped its interim dividend and slashed the pay of its board and chief executive by 20% after reporting a 45% slump in March passenger traffic due to COVID-19. Most domestic and international flights from the airport have now stopped, with a 96% drop in international passengers in the first two weeks of April and a 97% drop in domestic travellers compared to the same period a year earlier. The airport warned that most planes would stay on the ground until the government relaxed travel restrictions. And ANZ data shows that total employee jobs fell 5.5% and total employee wages fell 5.1% in the week ending April. Unsurprisingly, hospitality and arts and recreation are bearing the brunt of job and wage losses due to COVID-19 restrictions, as are the youngest and oldest workers. Of those who had a job in the first week of April, almost a quarter had their hours reduced due to COVID-19. And Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe has warned Australia is this year likely to experience its biggest contraction in international output since the Great Depression. Dr Lowe says the national output is likely to fall by about 10% over the first half of 2020, and the unemployment rate is likely to be around 10% by June. He also cautioned against lifting social distancing restrictions too quickly, and he said if coronavirus re-emerges and the tough restrictions had to be reimposed, the loss of incomes and jobs would be even more pronounced. And the Grattan Institute has crunched the numbers on the unemployment fallout we can expect from the coronavirus pandemic by analysing how many Australians' jobs rely on working in close physical proximity to others, such as performers. Researcher Brendan Coates said the Institute's analysis found between 14 and 26% of the entire Australian workforce will lose their jobs, if they haven't already, as a result of government shutdowns and physical distancing rules. This more than doubles the Federal Treasury forecast that unemployment would rise to 10% in the June quarter, a figure which hasn't reached double digits since 1994. Mr Coates said the Grattan Institute figures were slightly higher, probably because they included people who were expected to fall out of the job market altogether, while the Treasury figures included people who would still be employed under the JobKeeper program. Unsurprisingly, the Grattan Institute found hospitality workers would be the hardest hit, with about 60% of jobs lost across the industry. Arts and recreation were also greatly affected, with more than 50% of jobs lost. Mr Coates said the effects of the response to the pandemic would not be felt evenly, with many higher-paying jobs able to be performed remotely or from home. And at least 540,000 people have lost their jobs in less than a month because of the impact from COVID-19, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. A survey of 1,000 households asking about jobs, hours work, health precautions, hygiene, social distancing, self-isolation, flu vaccination and travel showed that even with the government's $130 billion job wage subsidy, there was still a big rise in unemployment. The survey found that the proportion of people who had a job fell by three percentage points between early March and early April. Since that time, thousands of workers have either been laid off or stood down by companies hard hit by travel and social distancing restrictions in response to the pandemic. They include Qantas, Telstra, Corporate Travel Management, Flight Centre, Star Entertainment and retailers such as Meyer and Country Road, Suzanne Group and Michael Hill. And global economics experts have warned the Prime Minister and National Cabinet that relaxing social distancing measures too quickly could lead to longer-term damage to the economy and risks a second-wave outbreak of COVID-19. The open letter was penned by economics professors from the University of Melbourne, the University of New South Wales and George Washington University in the US and has been signed by 246 economists, including from superannuation fund Cern Super, Oxford University and the Reserve Bank of Philadelphia.
The Economist said the successful measures Australia had implemented to cut down the virus spread has put Australia in an enviable position compared to other countries and we must not squander that success. The Economist acknowledged that the lockdown had stifled economic activity and jobs, but said that was outweighed by the lives that had been saved and wrote the economic costs would have been far greater if the riot virus had run rampant. And the Morrison government is resisting calls to make key changes to its $130 billion JobKeeper program as firms rush to enrol in the scheme and find cash to cover their staff wage bills. On Monday, the Australian Tax Office and Accountants reported a rush by businesses to enrol in JobKeeper, which will provide $1,500 a fortnight to firms for each eligible staff member with payments due to start rolling out next month. It is a pivotal part of the government's response to the economic consequences of the social distancing rules introduced to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Treasury modelling suggests that without the scheme, the nation's unemployment rate could reach 15%. But firms and their tax advisors are discovering issues with the program, including a requirement that cash-strapped operations cover the wages of their staff while the business is effectively not operating. Firms set up as partnerships, which account for 9% of all small businesses, can only access JobKeeper for one partner. Other partners must go on to the lower job seeker payment. And Facebook and Google will be forced to pay Australian media companies for publishing their news stories under a world-first mandatory code of conduct after negotiations with the two global digital giants failed. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and Communications Minister Paul Fletcher ordered the Australian Competition Consumer Commission to draw up a mandatory code of conduct to correct the imbalance of bargaining power between local media companies and global technology platforms. This follows complaints from local media companies that Facebook and Google did not genuinely engage in negotiations over voluntary code. The government was motivated to act by the collapse in advertising caused by the coronavirus-induced economic downturn, which put further pressure on the viability of media companies. The new code being drawn up by the competition watchdog, headed by Rod Sims, will include enforcement, penalties and ways to sort out arguments between the global platforms and local media companies. It will include sharing of revenue generated from news, ranking and display of local news content on Facebook and Google sites, as well as data sharing. And HostPlus is seeking to withdraw $1.5 billion from one of the country's biggest property investment funds ahead of what could be an avalanche of requests by out-of-work hospitality and tourism workers for early access to their retirement savings. The Australian Tax Office will today begin processing applications for early access to superannuation under relaxed hardship rules, with Treasury anticipating up to $27 billion will be removed by 1.6 million members nationwide. HostPlus has notified property fund ISPT that it wants to redeem $1.5 billion, which is about 10% of total assets in the ISPT core fund. For HostPlus, $1.5 billion represents nearly a third of the property holdings in its flagship MySuper balanced option. And National Australia's Bank's first half earnings will take a $1.14 billion after-tax hit, even before the impact of the coronavirus is accounted for, with the bank flagging additional remediation costs, a reduction in the value of its wealth business and additional software expenses which will combine to slice profits. The additional charges, which represent around 18% of NAB's expected earnings for the full year, will add to the pressure on NAB's dividend as it considers whether to defer payments to shareholders after the prudential regulator's warning that dividends may need to be suspended until the COVID-19 outlook is clearer. NAB said investors will have to wait until it reports half-year numbers on May the 7th to see the impact of the pandemic on its earnings and balance sheet, including provisions combined with capital and dividend implications. Before that, after-tax profits
profits will be hit by $188 million tax due to additional customer remediation costs, by $742 million due to changes in policies concerning the capitalisation of software, and by a further $214 million after an impairment in its investment in MLC life. And Australian wine exports to mainland China have slumped by almost half, with other markets predicted to follow. Similar lockdowns across Europe and North America will impact the $45 billion industry, with exports to China already down 43% on last year. Despite a spike in wine sales in Australia as pubs, clubs, cafes and restaurants shut down and Australians stay home, experts warn that one-third of Australia's wineries could go under because of the pandemic. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be interviewing Andreas Zulma, the founder of Longtail UX, which managed to secure $5 million of funding when so many Australian businesses are struggling with the impact of COVID-19. How did he do it? And then I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Avery about how China's economy is coping with the global recession and whether it will recover. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBell.Z, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.